0: Where we talk to people from the world of audio
1: about their ideas, opinions, and methods. Hello, I'm Mark Young, and today I'm speaking with the producer and engineer Sylvia Massey. She's worked with an amazing collection of artists over the years, including Johnny Cash, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Prince, and Tool. She's legendary for her extremely unusual yet highly effective recording techniques. This episode of Signal Path was recorded at the famous Gold Watch studio in Berlin, Germany. Sylvia Massey is next. Sylvia, thanks so much for speaking with me today.
0: Nice to meet you, Mark.
1: Johnny Cash, Tool, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Melvin's. I could go on. Uh, while I was researching for this interview, I realized you've produced half my record collection, so I guess I should be grateful that you decided to turn away from radio early on in your career. Why was it? At what point did you say, I don't want to play music, I want to be involved in music production? How did
0: that happen? Well, I uh, got involved in radio early, and that's where I learned how to use a lot of the equipment that I used for recording later. But, um, after several years in commercial radio out of, uh, outside of, um, uh, the university, um, I found out that, uh, radio is really about, uh, commercials, not necessarily about music. So that made me want more, um, the music side of it. And that was, uh, so I took the skills that I learned in radio and, um. Uh, Went into music production.
1: And that's when you first started. I think you, one of the earliest projects was with uh, Kurt Hammett from Metallica.
0: Yeah, he was in Metallica, uh, but he'd also been playing with a band called Exodus. Mm. And I was familiar with Exodus from uh, recording some of their early demos. Um, so when the opportunity came to work with Kirk on uh, co producing an album by a band called the Sea Hags, then I was ready for that and I knew Kirk from that.
1: At one point you just said, I really want to pursue this. This is for my career, and you're going to move to LA. How did that come about? You just said, I'm going to go move down there and see what
0: happens? It turned out that um, my time in San Francisco was important to learn the skills of recording engineering and to kind of um, feel my way through the the music industry there but it's a very small industry in san francisco uh i did some work with kirk on that sea hags record and i did several other projects including um, compilation records with uh with uh, for for um rap music and um but ultimately i realized that if i really wanted to have a career doing music production that i I had to move out of San Francisco and into LA because the San Francisco scene was very small and the, the real the real um, uh, movers and shakers were in LA. And uh, for instance, the, the Kirk Hammett project that I worked with, uh, with Kirk on the the band, The Sea Hags, they did get an album deal out of um, the work that we did. Mm. They got signed to Chrysalis Records and... Um, after the uh, label execs heard the work that we did on an indie record. And uh, here I expected that that was my door to getting a, a label gig with Sea uh, Hags. But they instead went to L.A. and recorded with Mike Clink, who had just done Guns N' Roses, and so I couldn't really compete with that. Uh, and, uh, and especially, you know, just being up in San Francisco... So uh, that was when I decided that I was going to have to move to L.A.
1: Well, and then how was that coming from a smaller scene in San Francisco where you maybe got to do hands-on more of what you wanted to? How was that kind of going, being a a bigger fish in a smaller pond and then moving into the big pond of L.A., this industry down there? How was that?
0: Well, I'd done a lot of recording in San Francisco. I'd pretty much been uh, working from studio to studio for five years and I learned how to use all the, the uh, recording equipment, um, and but coming to LA, I was I basically had to start over, and I think that's true with most anybody moving to a new uh, town, especially LA, where uh, there's already established people working in that industry, and so you have to gain the trust of of uh, clients. Maybe it might take two years for for that to happen for you. And that's what happened with me. It took about two years. Uh, In the meantime, while I was struggling to make these connections in L.A., I uh, took a bunch of um, of, uh, entry-level jobs in... um, Well, one was a retail job at Tower Records. And that actually was the best thing I could have done because all the people at tower at the at that time they were all striving musicians and doing i I guess we should say for
1: all the anyone under 35 tower records used to be a massive like an important place it's where you go to buy your music but it particularly like you're saying in la it was the it was like a nexus for for performing musicians as well so
0: and and I I guess even today that you would the the musicians in L.A. would be looking for retail um, shops or other places, even though it's not music retail mm. anymore. It'd be like a mu- you know musical instrument retail or clothing stores or restaurants where you can interact with people who are in the industry and meet potential clients. Mm. So yeah, that's it, and that's what happened. Is I I met. Uh, uh, and started working with some musicians that were my co-workers and they were in a band one was called green jello and members of that band were also in a band called tool so here i made these com- co- connections with with uh, people that um that whose music would change my life later
1: <laughs> yeah i mean uh... And as you say, I mean, you started out with uh, Kirk Hammett and, and then Green Jello and Tool. These are all very, very heavy bands and known for this uh, just incredibly heavy sound, um, which is what you, they you know, people would know you can handle that or the, the way you would approach it. But you've also worked over the course of your career with people like Johnny Cash, of course, and Prince. And even I saw Julio Iglesias mm-hmm. that you were involved in that. And I was just wondering... How do you approach each particular project? I know you've also even done totally wild different uh, different styles of genres of music like Zydeco and stuff. Mm. Is it that you approach each artist or project in, a, in in its own special way? Or is it that you have a, the Sylvia Massey approach that applies to all these different artists and genres? Can you say?
0: I think yeah, there's... Great music in all genres, and um, the first thing I'm looking for is something that really touches me emotionally, whether it's hard music, and that will excite me in certain ways. Uh, hard music is is my roots, I guess. I've been in bands that played hard music and punk music and metal, you know. So uh, it makes me smile. There's a, a, an extreme, the, the more extreme the better. So um but then on the other hand there's beautiful country music roots music there's uh uh really exciting funk music mm. which um uh, you know and I got a chance to work with Prince for several years and that was amazing and um and the Johnny Cash was a big surprise I think I, I w- at one time I sat down with a psychic And this was long before I'd ever worked with Johnny Cash. And the psychic said to me, you will have great success in country music. And I just looked at her and I says, that's very unlikely. (laughs) And yet that did happen.
1: I mean, but how is uh, that like Mr. Cash walks into that? I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how is that, you know, working with a a legend at that time. I mean, how is that? They're so well known uh, before you work with them is that something that you carry with you when you're when you're coming to work with them or you know does that change how you approach what you're doing with somebody like Johnny Cash or Prince
0: it's hard not to be impressed by fame Mm -hmm. but uh, when you are working with musicians generally the the tools are the same you know they they're you're working with verses and choruses and and uh rhythms and melodies and so uh the challenges are similar when you're recording uh any of any any genre um and hopefully it's it's uh y- you can help the artists express themselves because it's a form of art and and my job is is to help the artist realize what uh, their intention is with that music, whether it's they're covering someone else's song or um, their own uh, compositions. I guess now,
1: how is it? Is it now that you are picking the artist you're working with or is it also that artists know who you are and what you can do? And is it that they say, we really want what Sylvia Massey can bring to our art? Is it a combination or, how is, or is it more that you say, I can pick and choose now who I really... This is an artist that I would love to work with. How does that work now for you?
0: Both those worlds intersect these days. Uh, I get a lot of inquiries from very creative bands. I think that they do knock on my door because I will bring things to the sessions that other people may not bring. Hmm. And I welcome that. And uh, the more creative, the better. I am always looking for the songs as the most important uh, piece of the puzzle here. And uh, that's the first thing we'll work on, is is I'll ask an an, an artist that I'm working with to provide me with songs. If we're doing a a 10-song album, I'll I'll want to hear at least 30 songs Mm, so that we can start picking the material early. And, uh, and that's developing before,
1: the material. That's before you're even in the studio with them? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Okay, long. While long we're
0: long. still corresponding, yeah. we may meet or we may just do it by Skype or um, through email, but, but I'll want to uh, really investigate. The music, even if these songs are undeveloped, hmm. that I want to know what the chorus is. The chorus melodies are um, an important lyric. You know, what is the song about? Uh, the, the way a verse and a, a chorus work together. I want to know those things so I can make some judgments about that and help the artist pick material that would make for a good release.
1: I can imagine that's a lot of work. I mean, in the sense of what the artists, you know, they come and say, oh, here are these, this is what I've got. Um, And they're like, oh, God, she's asking me, you know, the meaning of this part or that part. But on the the flip side of that is I can imagine if they're willing to do that for you, really think about what it is, whether it's the lyric or whatever it is, the melody that they're working, that um, that's got to be immensely helpful for them as well to be able, to make you your step making them step back and look at it before they're even getting in the studio that they're really getting you're forcing them to take a, a different take a different look at their own stuff before
0: and sometimes that's very uncomfortable for an artist you know the uh, uh recently i worked with a project where the songs were as i found out were deeply personal about someone's struggling with their relationship with their with her spouse. And uh, and I sat down and talked with her specifically about what was going on. It, in that sense, I became kind of a bit of a therapist. And, and here we're going to make a song out of this experience that you're going through. And uh, so let's really... Um, uh, bring that out in the song. And the great thing about music that's written from the heart like that is that when we get into doing vocals, I can pull that out of the artist, too. And, okay, you know, when I'm, when I'm working with this artist, I'll, I'll ask them. Specifically, the lyrics that you're singing right now, I want you to put your mind back to the moment that you wrote those words down. And why you wrote them down, and give me the real story behind these words and and oftentimes the the performances will will really reflect mm. uh, what the lyric is about and and that 's when you know you 've got a great performance is if if i if i 'm convinced that this person is really communicating the story to me and uh we get uh, we get some special moments in the studio that are. Extremely emotional and sometimes very uncomfortable, but um, really satisfying ultimately when when uh, the results are great.
1: That I mean, that's on that's oh, like you're saying. It's almost as a therapist or uh, the the philosophical side of it, or that you're actually working on the emotional side of it. But there's a whole other side of what you do and what you're really f- well known uh, for is the, your unorthodox techniques and what you do. You're known for, uh, demolishing, Pianos you're what else have you done? You've uh, recorded in a cooling tower? Was that like a pa- abandoned yeah. was it a nuclear power plant?
0: Rec- yeah, there was a, a nuclear it, cooling tower yeah. in a in a nuclear power plant.
1: But not um it was like an abandoned one not that you're in the the radiation or whatever. <laughs> thing. It was like a an empty cooling no, tower. No,
0: it was actually yeah. abandoned and it ha- was abandoned before it actually went online, so there was never yeah. any no, we don't have to worry about yeah. that. But uh I do try to uh, bring in unconventional te- techniques into the sessions for many reasons. And I suppose my philosophy in that sense comes from the idea that if you, if you want to help someone to be, let's say, uh, an analogy would be an, a mathematician, hmm. uh, but that person has only ever used a calculator... They don't necessarily ever need to to visualize math problems uh, in their mind because they can just use these buttons and push the buttons and the buttons give them all the answers. Well, in that sense, I'm asking people to go into the studio and find new new solutions using their own brain power to create sounds instead of using you know buttons in a computer to get the sounds that everybody else gets to everyone has access to um uh, to uh pre-recorded sounds but uh i want to challenge people to to invent new sounds however that is done and in doing that it's it helps to inspire the artist to um, to think outside the box uh to use a cliche term but uh so, a lot of times I'll start a session by saying, "Okay, in in uh, in week three of our session, we're going to be working for for three weeks. In week three, we're going to record um, on a boat." Uh, in in the Thames River, and and we're going to um, record acoustically, and I, and I'll give them a scenario. Okay, we're going to do this this crazy thing, for instance, and then from the moment that we begin the session, week one, till that point in week three, everyone is looking forward mm. to this event, so they're they're moving towards that goal. They're not stuck on. The the details of, um, you know, how much 4K you're adding on the, you know, the piano sound or something like this. You know, they're, they're really like, well, let's move through here because we have this reward at the end of our work. Uh, so it, it gives people uh, uh, a goal. And, uh, and it also inspires them to be thinking of new ways of recording and creating sounds along the way, too. And, uh, they, my, my, um, my job as producer is, is to kind of guide and rein in some of these ideas, which may be very time consuming. I always have to watch my schedule mm. to see, okay, we need to get this much work done. Absolutely, the foundation must be done before we have our fun time. Uh, so I'll, I'll work to get everything done, all the important foundational uh, tracking done. And then we'll go off on the boat somewhere or we'll we'll go in a nuclear cooling tower. Or How we'll are go, you coming up with these yeah.
1: ideas, though? I mean, is it really just that um, I, I just see you sitting up late at night, maybe a glass of cocoa or something, you know, and, and kind of <laughs> coming up with, what? OK, what are we going to do? What's going to be the special thing? I mean, of course, it depends on where you're working, uh, you know, and the band you're working with. But is it just that you're constantly brainstorming of coming Absolutely. up with these ideas? Yeah.
0: Well, it's endless. Mm. The possibilities are endless. I mean, there's beautiful acoustic spaces around the world, and that's why it's so exciting to be in Europe to do recording sessions, because there's fabulous churches and cathedrals that, uh, you know, you may not have ever thought of recording in before. There's all kinds of interesting spaces. And to, to take a musician, let's say a singer and have them singing in a in a vocal booth in a studio, you're gonna get one type of performance. You take that same singer and that same vocal, uh, the same, let's say, the same verse in a song and you have that sung with the same vocalist in a cathedral, mm. you're going to get a completely different performance. It's going to be uh, inspired by the surroundings. So I like to put musicians into different surroundings that that inspire um, uh, different, better performances.
1: I know you're also not adverse to torturing singers <laughs> as well, right? I think it was was it the system of the down singer? You hung him up upside down, or was that yeah? Yes,
0: that was true. Yeah, and and with the, that type of music, it was it seemed appropriate uh, because. If you're trying to get a performance out of someone, maybe it's not uh, that you want to give them candles and incense and hot tea, but you want to put them in a cold room uh, and with the lights uh, all the way up and make them as uncomfortable as possible to get that that kind of anger that you need for a particular song if it's an angry song yeah
1: and you were saying you're we're in berlin now but you're just in uh dresden i believe you're recording in a castle there so i mean that must be again it's a special it's a unique environment is that um that's someplace you've recorded before uh i'm just thinking of like the the preparation time and some of these if you're saying like a cathedral or the cooling tower there's there's a lot that could go wrong i guess how do you prepare for that or do you? Or are you just waiting to see how it turns out?
0: Well, there are certain studios that I, I'll come back to again and again. Uh, and uh, for instance, the studio in Dresden is called Castle Rohrsdorf. And there's uh, some great equipment in this studio. Plus, it's in a castle. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: people love to come there and record. I bring people over from the States quite a bit. And we um, there's accommodations there and um the the yeah it's it's it, a lot of it has to do with the equipment too, and the other thing that I'll do when I go for field recording, which I love to do, where there is no studio, I have to streamline my rig so that I can carry it in to these um places and i've done that in several ways uh, depending on if there's power available or not the the cooling tower there was power so i brought in uh, mike prees and uh, a collection of microphones and was able to plug in and go there um but in the uh recently i was in the london underground in um the Aldwych tube station which is abandoned and um There was no power available. So I carried in a portable battery operated recorder with eight mic pres. Sounds great. It's a multi track recorder. So I was able to uh, do, uh, you know, carry in my bags of microphones and set them up and uh, do the recording in the underground and then um, put those into an existing Pro Tools session. In fact, the. uh, TFL, which is the Transport uh, Association for for uh, London, made it extremely difficult, for, uh, and they charged a lot. Like we could only afford one hour, uh, but but we rented the Aldwych Tube Station for an hour, and we dragged all our equipment down 150. Steps down to these two abandoned platforms. One had a dead train on it, hmm. and the other one was completely open. And so we split up into two teams because we had limited time. And I took one recorder over to the platform that had the train, and the other team went over to the other side. And we did acoustic guitar on one uh, on the train, uh, and then did drums on the platform, and then combined everything later.
1: And how did it turn out? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, Those yeah.
0: Were, it's I'll beyond it fantastic. It yeah. Sometimes these crazy ideas don't necessarily work. Uh, there was a a project, a band called Machines of Love and Grace, that I did a recording in Malibu, California, and we um, we had a sacrificial. Guitar that was one of those things where, on you know, I said at the beginning of the session, on week four, we're going to take the sacrificial guitar and we're going to throw it off the cliff. So, everyone was looking forward to that, and everyone added their little design and painted this sacrificial guitar, which was a $50 guitar, you know, nothing special. Uh, but at the end of the session, week four, we Set up a, a very long extension cord out to the, the the cliff overlooking the ocean, and got the guitar squealing and a beautiful feedback, and then tossed it over the cliff, and it was bang 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 crash crash break break. It was really spectacular sound. Unfortunately, it didn't really work. The recording did not really fit into any place in the song, not as a segue or in in the middle of a song. So we kind of abandoned the idea of using it, but no one will ever forget the experience of, of um, tossing that guitar so,
1: But you have the, to be prepared to toss the special recording. If it doesn't work, you're just like, right. you've got to be... You have you know, to... It's about the experiences. Yeah,
0: well. you have to expect that maybe, the, you know, sometimes equipment doesn't work. I actually recently was in Prague in, a, uh, in the Prague Castle, in at Bell Tower, there's a huge bell tower at Prague Castle. Um, and that was another <laughs> 300 steps to get up to this platform where the bells are rung at precisely 10 o'clock. And these are humongous bells. And I brought a whole recording rig up there for this. And um, the interfaces uh, I'd tested beforehand. I set up my mics. And precisely at 10 o'clock, the interfaces would not power up. Not for anything. I couldn't. So I wound up recording it with my iPhone. And we still used it in the session. But, you know, sometimes you just have to accept the fact that sometimes these things won't work. And maybe you need to have a backup plan, too. (laughs)
1: in your studio in Ashland, Oregon. You use, you have your Neve desk there. You have stuff that you build yourself, you know, you're you're kind of putting together. So um, Dresden, for example, the castle. What was your check-in baggage like what were you bringing over from from home to to, uh, to use over here
0: well when i go to dresden i am confident in the, the equipment at the studio so i will usually bring empty bags because oh. i'll be bringing things back with oh. me <laughs> uh, uh but uh i've resigned myself to the fact that every studio is a little bit different and i'm still curious and i want to learn if there's equipment that I haven't yet, yet used, I want to learn about it. Just like coming here and seeing this tree audio uh, console in this studio. Th- this is something I don't know, I'm not familiar with, so I'm going to be looking more into that. So these going into a studio without, without my uh, comfortable, familiar Neve equipment, I'm okay with. Because I know I can get great results with whatever's given to me
1: that being said, do you have a, some gear that is your go-to gear? Is there an item that you feel like I always need to have this with me or?
0: Well, honestly, there's uh, yes, there, there is equipment and it's simple and inexpensive equipment that I will, um, I, I can guarantee a great result every time. And, uh, for drums, I'll always, Look for SM57s for the snare. Um, uh, Sennheiser 421s for the t- bottom of the toms. If I only have 57s and 58s, I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, I usually will use an SM81 for high-frequency, like, um, hat, ride. I can use 81s for overheads. Mm. Um, so, And the same thing goes with guitar. If I have a 57, I, I know I will get great results. Um also vocals the you know depending on where I am in the world there you know I have no idea what kind of studio I'm going to be walking into in Argentina for instance if they if as long as they have some 58s and 57s and um, 421s I'm I'm going to be fine you know maybe not even the 421s I'm fine um and I learned that from years working with uh, in the, the professional studios in LA, and really seeing that it's not about your um, expensive German mic that makes a great recording. It's about really about the musician and the emotion and um, and how the how the drums are played. You know, um, so. One story I can share about that is working with the uh, with the Smashing Pumpkins with Rick Rubin producing, and I was engineering and we set up about twenty five thousand dollars worth of microphones f- to find the right microphone for Billy Corgan's vocal and those mics were all lined up uh, there was uh u forty sevens um Uh, The uh, Telefunken uh, 250, 251, um, the M49 Neumann, the C12, we had, uh, um, what else did we have, U87, we had all those German mics, we had uh, a Sennheiser 421, and what the heck, we had a SM57 and SM58 sure mics. And we went through and had the singer, Billy, sing the same verse on each one of them, one at a time, and put them all on different tracks. And then we did a blindfold test to see which one was the right vocal mic for Billy. And it turned out to be the 58. I mean, beyond, be, over all of them. Uh, and from that moment on, I, I knew that, and I, and I suggest to everyone that if you... Um, if you have a 58 you're okay and you don't need to spend ten thousand dollars on a microphone
1: so that was a blind test meaning that you rick rubin and billy you all of you were listening to it and you didn't know which the
0: mic that's was right yeah. after we recorded each of these mics on a separate track then uh, then we listened to them one at a time without knowing which mm-hmm. mic we were listening to and uh, and the whole room agreed that it was that that the fifty eight was the winner. So, and that's you know, it's a hundred dollar mic.
1: And there was this thing that I saw you did, and you it was talking about miking drums by putting a piece of like sticking a piece of hose on the microphone and feeding it like under the drums to get like a cool room sound, right? Of the of the. How do you come up with that? I mean, where where is it? At what point do you say? I think I'm going to try to stick, like, the hose on the, this mic and see what it... How do
0: you... Oh, I don't know where these things... Well, specifically, that, that idea did come from uh, the discovery of how a Cooper time cube works. This is an old device that was built in the 70s as a delay. It's an analog delay. And how it worked was there was a little speaker on the end of a hose and on the other end of that hose was a little microphone so now whatever you played in the speak out of that speaker would uh there would be a delay by the time it got to the microphone it was a very short delay <laughs> but uh and you could buy these devices they the the hose would come in a box and uh, and i had one and i opened it up i discovered this hose this whole thing and i thought to myself well i could make this what's the big deal So I did. I I got a garden hose and I stuck a mic on it and I put a speaker on the other end of it and I created my own time cube. And that was fun. It was entertaining and it was useful. Uh, Then uh, that, that was just sitting in the room when I was recording drums and I accidentally listened to the mic with the hose attached to it. And it was great. The greatest. The great thing about it was that it had the, the sound of the room without all the washy cymbals because drummers love cymbals and they go, <laughs> you know, if you put a compressor on a, a drum room when they're crashing on the cymbals, it spoils the fun of this big, boomy room. So here's a way to record the drum room without the washy cymbals getting in the way
1: so it's a it's a the fact of just your innate curiosity that you're doing stuff and discovering it and then a little bit of maybe serendipity that comes into these kind of things
0: absolutely yeah. and and I am inspired by other people's ideas too Ed Cherney, who's a great mixer and engineer um, mentioned something to me once that I took and ran (laughs) with, he said that uh, you can take a speaker cable and insert a a motor into it, or what he said was inserting a drill into the speaker cable on the way way to the speaker. Let's say you have an amplifier and the speaker cable on the way to the speaker, you insert a drill into that. Now, the drill's not plugged into the wall, the power drill is actually the the power cable is just running your audio through um, the drill on mm-hmm. the way to the speaker, and he said yes. And if you hit certain frequencies, well, that that motor will start up. And I was like, what? So I immediately went out and took a a speaker cable that you know uh, out of a, a Marshall amplifier on the way to the Marshall um, speaker, and I cut it in half and I inserted. A Dremel drill into it, and indeed, it did start up. So I thought, well, what the heck? Why don't we try other things? So I started inserting whatever I could find. You can put a fan in it. You can put light bulbs in it. You can put sausages in it. You can put <laughs> cheese in it. You can put potatoes in it. You, you know. So and and it turns out that everything that you put in to this speaker cable. Acts as a filter, and 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 uh, it it changes the sound in different ways.
1: And do you have a favorite? Are sausages better than pickles, or I I mean, is absolutely, there? Absolutely, yeah? yes. I have a favorite. Is it a secret, or can you tell? us? No, I can tell. I can
0: <laughs> tell. No, I think one of my favorite sounds uh, is running audio through a fluorescent light bulb. Uh-huh. The the speaker out of an amplifier, and I'll use a solid state amplifier sometimes I'll use a preamp in front of it just to get that extra bump but the speaker out run through uh, a, a fluorescent light bulb fantastic fuzz sound and now if you do the same kind of routing and you route that through cheese incredible blues tone
1: And it it doesn't matter what kind of cheese it is, or do you have a specific type of cheese? I usually use Gouda. Gouda, okay, good to know. It's good to know. I was wondering, because soft cheese probably wouldn't
0: No, like you would think, well, Blue Stone or Blue Cheese. Blue Cheese, well, that's what I was thinking, but I was like, no. Well, I haven't tried Blue Cheese, but it's a little too crumbly.
1: Uh, Getting back to microphones, you're also doing uh, workshops these days, and I know that you're also, you've written one book. Um and now you're working on another book about microphones. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How are you approaching the topic of microphones?
0: Yes, I'm uh the the recording unhinged book, which was the the one that uh we put out 2 years ago, uh is more about experimental sound and these types of things like this light bulb thing I'm telling you about. But uh this new book is very serious. It's it's a uh, basically an encyclopedia about vintage microphones, and it will catalog um, all the makers uh, and all the most important mics that... Uh, well, I have to curate this book, so it'll be my judgment on what what is an, an important mic. I think it's not only the quality of the sound that's recorded through the mic, but it's also how the... Uh, Technically, it was built, or what kind of new technology it incorporated, um, where it was built, who was building it, um, the age, uh, you know, uh, that uh, the how early it was. So these are all factors in deciding what six hundred mics are going to be in this book. So I've started on it um, this year and uh, have met with several. Uh, microphone manufacturers and collectors and am uh, collecting many stories along with the uh, the specifics about individual mics so the the book is due out in 2019 and will be. Uh, I think it will be a very very good book. In many ways
1: you're such a pioneer that I thought maybe we should end this by asking if you have any specific advice that you would give somebody today, a younger person looking to get into music engineering and mm-hmm. production. What would you tell them?
0: One thing I could say is that the more specialized that you are in developing your craft, the more opportunity that that you'll um You'll get, for instance, if you're a really great engineer or producer, that's one thing. But if you can also program, uh, if you could also, if you can also build uh, devices, like if you can build um, uh, effects pedals or microphones yourself, you're going to have an advantage over your competitor. And there's a lot of competition. Have more to offer than your competitor. Even if that means like you can build websites or you can help in other promotional ways with your clients. Your clients all need help with those things too. So uh, offer more. The other thing is um, whenever you are going for uh, uh, an improvement in your your career um, by moving to a new city, let's say, give it a chance. Give give don't give up after 6 months. You know, it's going to be hard oftentimes like I like my experience moving to LA. I was so disappointed because I had so much experience when I went to LA, yet I could not get a good gig. And I wound up working in retail for uh, you know, a year and then kind of, you know, sweeping floors for another year after that. Give yourself at least 2 years. To, to get your roots in, into the, the industry that you're working towards.
1: That was Sylvia Massey, and this has been Signal Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to hear more stories from the people shaping the world of audio. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you tune in next time.